Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Senator Kamala Harris. Tonight we'll be getting to know Senator Harris and where she stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Kamala Harris was born in Oakland, California in 1964. She earned her bachelor's degree from Howard University and a law degree from the University of California, Hastings. She started her career at the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, then in 2003 became the District Attorney of the City and County of San Francisco, where she started a program for first-time drug offenders to get their high school degree and find a job. She was then elected as the first African-American and first woman to be the Attorney General of California. During her tenure, she won a $25 billion settlement for homeowners affected by foreclosure. She was elected to the U.S. Senate from California in 2016 as the second African-American woman and the first South Asian-American senator in history. Among others, Harris serves on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and the Select Committee on Intelligence. Senator Harris lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Doug Emhoff, and his stepmother to Ella and Cole Emhoff. Senator Harris, thank you for joining us on Conversation thank with you. the Candidate. It's candidates. great to be with you we again. Appreciate your time. Thank you. So it's no secret the country is divided, and the 2020 election is going to be a fight. You've pitched yourself as a fighter. If you win and you become president, how do you then unify the country? Uh, for me, it's really basic, Adam, and it's how I think of everything, frankly, in terms of even our policies, which is the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And I think we as Americans know that. We know that in our hearts. We know that in our souls. And we've had so many powerful forces that I think are trying to sow hate and division among us. But I think most Americans know the vast majority of us have more in common than what separates us. And here's how I think about it. I talk about it in the context of the three in the morning thought, right? When we wake up in the middle of the night, that thought, that thing that's been weighing on us, or the worrying us. Well, for the vast majority of us, when we wake up with that thought, it is never through the lens of the party with which we're registered to vote. It is never through the lens of some simplistic demographic some pollster put us in. And for the vast majority of us, when we wake up thinking that thought, it has to do with one of just a very few things. Our personal health, the health of our children, or our parents. For so many people, can I get a job, keep a job, pay the bills by the end of the month, retire with dignity? For our students here in New Hampshire and around the country, can I pay off those student loans? Here in New Hampshire and around the country, can I help my family member get off their opioid addiction or their drug addiction? The vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And I think the American people want a president who is in the business of using her power and her microphone in a way that is about lifting people up, not beating them down, lifting them up, and focusing with a priority on that 3 a.m. agenda. You've seen a big bounce in the polls since that debate moment with Vice President Biden over the issue of busing to integrate schools in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, if you're the president, do you see bringing that policy back in a big way? No, I, listen, I, there's no question in my mind at all that when the United States Supreme Court, led by Earl Warren in a unanimous decision, decided Brown v. Board of Education, it is because 
we decided and agreed that the separation of children based on race in our schools was unconstitutional and contrary to our values as a nation. So after that decision in 1954, there were still states who had leaders in those states who resisted and fought against integration. So there had to be court-mandated busing to force integration because there were powerful forces who did not want the integration of children in our public schools. We're not at that place now. That's not the issue now. We still have segregation in schools in large part because of socioeconomic conditions, but we're not where we were then. And so I, you know, I think that we have got to, you know, there's no question as it relates to the segregation that we now see, we need to look at what we're doing in terms of are all families able to live in, you know, and afford in terms of housing and, and access to, to, to mortgages and to, and to loans. We need to look at tracking, certainly, the issues of the disparities between children in, in certain school districts. But no, I, this is not where we are. And we can't, we cannot forget the history, though. And that was the point I was making in the debate. We cannot forget the history, which is that, you know, it's, it's something we are not proud of, but in our country, there was a day that lasted a long time where governors and state legislatures stood in the way of the integration of our schools. And I think what we all know is that's not reflective of our values as a country and as Americans. The democratic field and a lot of Americans agree that climate change is an existential threat yes. to this country. Uh, if you want to decarbonize the economy, there is an available energy source that could do that quickly, nuclear power. Yeah. Is that part of your plan if you're the president? Uh, it, there's no question that there are benefits, but the, the issue really as it plays out every day, Adam, is that um, it has to be, you know, when we're talking about nuclear power, we cannot think about it without thinking about waste. And what are we going to do with that? And under the current administration, what we've seen is under the veil of night, they were transporting into Nevada um, without any permission or, or uh, authority from the, the leaders of that state. We cannot have an administration in the, in the White House who overlooks the authority and the, and the responsibility that state leaders have to make a decision about whether or not they want that. Um, and, and I feel very strongly about that. And, um, what the administration did in terms of um, taking waste and, 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 and transporting it literally under the veil of night into Nevada was absolutely wrong. And as president, I would not stand for that. You're a former prosecutor. And, and that's Yucca Mountain. Right, Yucca Mountain yeah. in Nevada. You're a former prosecutor. From the Democratic perspective, and yeah. juries are important, you know that. From the Democratic yes. perspective, what's the point of impeaching President Trump if the jury is the Republican-controlled Senate? It's a, listen, there are two, I think, um, principles perhaps that are at play on the issue of impeachment and just so that we can be candid right um, there is on the one the fact that uh, the Mueller report and then that investigation that took place by the special counsel over a course of two years clearly outlines at least 10 separate incidents of obstruction of justice I have read that report the report and Mueller's subsequent interviews I think make it clear that the only reason an indictment was not issued by the special counsel is because the Department of Justice has a memo that says you cannot indict a sitting president, right? So it was not based on the evidence. It was based on a protocol that says that if the sitting president, you, you can't indict the sitting president. So the question then becomes, well, what accountability and consequence can there be? We, we built a nation um, with, with the strong 
principle of, of fighting for a democracy, which means that there will be checks and balances. So if the special counsel in the Department of Justice can't issue the indictment, how are we going to handle it? Well, even in that memo from the Department of Justice and Mueller suggests, well, then Congress can act. So that means Congress should look into it, and there is a check and balance in our system where Congress can act to make sure that there's accountability and consequence if there has been illegal or bad conduct or abusive conduct. So for that reason, I am supportive of the process beginning because I do believe that we should always fight that the checks and balances in our government and in our democracy that they work and that they're active. Second point, to your, the point of your question, and then what? Will the United States Senate, which will be the jury on that case, return a verdict of guilty, to use your language? Probably not in its current composition. Because the United States Senate, um, under the current leadership and as it has been functioning, has not held this president accountable for most of his abuses. And so I think from a political perspective, if we are being completely candid about the strategic nature of what we're talking about, unlikely to happen, and some argue, I think, with good reason. So why are you going to do it if you don't win? But the other side of the argument is because we have to fight for the integrity of our democracy, which says, says that we have checks and balances, and that's how our democracy works. Senator Harris, thank you for answering these questions. Thank you. Next up is the town hall. Thank you. Adam. After the break, thank we'll you. bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Thank you. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. So we're going to jump right into our town hall questions here and start with Lauren Burns. Welcome, Senator Harris. Thank you for coming and listening to us. So my question comes from, I think, a dilemma that a lot of voters in New Hampshire and probably across the country are having. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is, what policies or principles mm -hmm. do you hold that would appeal to the Republican or independent voter mm -hmm. who's disappointed with the current administration yeah. but is looking for a real alternative yeah. um, but is also not motivated by the traditional liberal platform? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and thank you. So I'll, t I'll tell you the, the, the place that I'm coming from, and then I can share with you some of the policies. The place that I'm coming from is this. I strongly and deeply believe that as Americans, we have so much more in common than what separates us. And I think that part of what has happened over the last few years is that we've had powerful forces that are you know, trying to sow hate and division among us and have us as Americans pointing fingers at each other. And that's just not who we are. And so I come from the place of strongly believing we have more in common than what separates us. So my agenda, I call it the 3 a.m. agenda. And by that I mean this, 3 a.m. Some people call that the witching hour, right? The middle of the night. When we wake up in the middle of the night with that thought that's been weighing on us, well, for the vast majority of us, when we wake up thinking that thought, it is never through the lens of the party with which we're registered to vote. It is never through the lens of some simplistic demographic some pollster put us in. And for the vast majority of us, it has to do with one of just a very few things. Our personal health, the health of our children or our parents, 
For so many, can I get a job, keep a job, pay the bills by the end of the month, retire with dignity? For so many in New Hampshire, so many of our students, can I pay off the student loans? Right, New Hampshire, where the, the kids of the students of New Hampshire have the highest in-state tuition of any of any state. Um, for so many families, right? What do we have in common more than what separates us? Worried about how we can get our family member off their opioid addiction or their drug addiction. So the way I come with my uh, my priorities is from that place, which I know to be accurate. And so, for example, I am proposing. What economists have said will be the most significant middle class tax cut we've had in generations. I'm proposing that for families that make less than $100,000 a year, they get a tax credit of up to $6,000 a year that they can collect at up to $500 a month, which will be all the difference between those families being able to get through the end of the month with dignity or not. What's the basis of that? Well, in America today, for almost half of American families, they cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense, right? That could be the car breaks down. Anybody know what four tires cost, <laughs> right? And, you know, by the way, another one of my priorities is infrastructure. America's infrastructure is 125 to 150 years old. So we're talking about ri bridges and roads that are falling apart, not to mention what we need to do in building up an infrastructure around renewable energy and the climate crisis. Well, that's going to mean jobs. And also, back to that point about a $400 unexpected expense that can topple almost half of American families, why do you need to buy new tires? Because all those potholes. <laughs> but these issues are connected. These issues are actually directly connected. So my priorities, when elected, God willing, is to focus on the 3 a.m. agenda. What's keeping people up at night? You know, a lot of people have ideas about how they're going to transform and upend. But for me, it's like, hey, we got to first just deal with the stuff that people are dealing with every day because it's doable. And in a way that I think most people will agree, it's not even a bipartisan I approach. It's a nonpartisan approach. So that's how I think about it. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Next question comes from Nancy Friedholm. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Recent presidencies have made liberal use of executive orders yes. in order to promote initiatives that might not be passed by Congress. Yeah. Many of this year's candidates are promising to take action within the first few days of office, yeah. which wouldn't give time for representatives to vote. Mm -hmm. If elected, how will you use executive orders? So I, I do plan to use executive orders and executive action, and in particular on the issues that have been around a long time for which there's been no movement. So I'll give you an example of one. Um, what we need to do around reasonable gun safety laws. So I'll tell you that a lot of the issues that I think about, I often think about through the lens of a child. And I'll tell you why. I think that you can and should judge a society based on how it treats its children. So every day in America, our children, elementary, middle, high school students, are going to school when they have to have a drill where they're taught about how they should crouch in a corner or hide in a closet in the event that there's a mass shooter roaming the hallways of their school. And our kids are, are, are literally experiencing trauma at the thought that this might happen. They're sitting in classroom when they should be opening their minds to the wonders of science and math or art, and they're afraid that someone might run in the classroom at any moment. So here's the thing. When that child goes home at night, after having that drill and they're sitting down at the family table for dinner, they ask their parent, why mommy and daddy did we have to have that drill? 
And the answer is because the supposed leaders in Washington, D.C., over all these years of dealing with this issue, have failed to have the courage to act, have failed to have the courage to recognize that it's a false choice to say you're either in favor of the Second Amendment or you want to take everyone's guns away, have failed to have the courage to say, hey, fine if you want to go hunting, but we need reasonable gun safety laws in our country, including universal background checks and a renewal of the assault weapons ban. So here's my feeling about it. I am a former prosecutor. I have attended more police officer funerals than I care to tell you. I have held in my arms more mothers of homicide victims than I care to tell you. I have personally reviewed autopsy photographs. And when we ask about why Congress has failed to act, listen, it's not because we're waiting for the tragedy. We've seen the worst of human tragedies. It's not like we're waiting for a good idea. There are a whole lot of good ideas, including from my colleagues who are on that debate stage, most of which I support in terms of their ideas. It's about action. So on this point, I'll give the Congress more than a couple days, I'll give them 100 days after I'm elected to put a bill on my desk for signature. And if they fail to do it, I will take executive action. And in particular, put in place what will be the most comprehensive background check requirement. I will also require that the ATF, and we put resources in the ATF, to take the gun licenses of dealers who violate the law. You should know that 90% of the guns that are associated with crime are sold by just 5% of the dealers. We need enforcement. And then finally, by executive action, I will ban the importation of assault weapons into our country from foreign countries. And so the way I come at this issue is that there are certain matters that have just been around for a long time, and Congress continually fails to act, who's ever in the White House and who's ever in the majority. And so for some of these things, we just got to take action, and that's one example. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Nancy. Next question Thank comes from Beverly Cotton. Hi, Beverly. You're welcome to New Hampshire. Hi, Thank you for be being back. here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my interest is in you clarifying your position on health care. Sure. I'm wanting to know if it's yeah. private option, Medicare for all, sure. some combination, and could you tell me the details of that, please? Absolutely right. Thank I you. am in favor of Medicare for all. I believe it is the best option. Um, I believe that there is no question that right now we have Medicare for all. You know what that is? Our emergency rooms. Our emergency rooms. I was with a, a pediatric, um, she it was a, a physician, a, a pediatrician who works in an emergency room. She said, Kamala, we've got Medicare for all. But when we're doing it in the emergency rooms, that means that these individuals have reached a crisis point, and it means it's really expensive to the American taxpayer. The other point, 91% of the doctors in America are in Medicare. So when, you know, the insurance companies, who they've, they've got powerful lobbyists. They've had a powerful campaign, ad campaign, that's trying to convince the American family, you want to fight for your insurance company. No, you don't. You want your doctor. You want your doctor. You want that same doctor that, that gave birth to the first child to give birth to the third child. You want that doctor you've been going to that you trust and you know and you've spent time talking about your families over the years. Well, 91% of the doctors are in Medicare. In fact, the ones that are not are mostly um, th those that are d like doing cosmetic surgery and, and some pediatricians, but we can fix that. 
and get everybody in, but 91%. So unlikely you're going to lose your doctor. The other part that's important to make, millions of people every year that are called our seniors transition into Medicare with very little problem. So I am in favor of Medicare for all. On the issue of private insurance, we'll have supplemental insurance, but we're going to get to the place where with Medicare for all, for example, in my vision of Medicare for all, it includes dental. It includes vision. It includes hearing aids. Mm -hmm. Something our seniors know are extremely expensive and not currently covered. So that's my vision for Medicare for all. And I, I, the, the principle with which I approach this is, listen, we have to agree that access to health care should be a right and not just a privilege of those who can afford it. And the biggest barrier to American families having access to health care is literally cost. And I'll also, if I may, offer you another example of something that I think makes the point about the private insurance piece. Any given, you know, midnight, three in the morning in America, there is some parent whose child has got an out-of-control fever. And they then call the pediatrician or 911, what should I do? And they're told, go to the emergency room. So they put the baby in the back seat of the car, they drive to the hospital, they're sitting in the car looking at those sliding glass doors of the emergency room, one hand on their baby's forehead. Why are they paused? Because they know if they walk through those sliding glass doors, they'll be out of pocket. They're $5,000 deductible. They've got insurance. But over the years, the insurance companies have been jacking up deductibles, jacking up premiums, jacking up co-pays. So when we're thinking about our values and also what do we really want, what people really want is they want their doctor and they want access to health care without being burdened about can they afford it. So that's how I think about the issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Next you. question comes from Leanne Kluger. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Leanne. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Senator, what initiatives will you take to resolve issues at our border, specifically yeah. relating to child separation from parents yeah. and also to please supply supplies to immigrants that will help them be safe yeah. and healthy? Yeah, thank you. And your question makes the point, right, which is that we should be thinking of this through a number of lenses that include being humanitarians and understanding that we're talking about children, we're talking about parents. Um, when we talk about the Northern Triangle, we are talking about countries that have been described as the murder capitals of the world. And the part of the way that I think about it is this, and it's just a general basic point, most people don't like to leave home. Just think about that. Most of us don't want to leave home. We don't like to leave home. And we leave there because there's either we're fleeing something where there's no opportunity, right? But we have to for some reason or another. So I operate from that principle, but then let's go even further. What we have seen in terms of the children and, and the parents that you're talking about are people that have fleed, fled murder capitals of the world. Think about it in terms of a mother or father that makes a decision to pay a coyote, to pay a stranger, to transport their child from their country of origin through the entire country of Mexico, facing unknown peril. Why would they do that? It's because they know if they stayed where they are, it would be worse. But what has this administration done? It looks at these families and it says, go back to where you came from. It's inhumane and it's un-American. So what would we do? What would I do? Well, first of all, 
We have to have an, a legitimate process by he about hearing their cases and giving them a legitimate opportunity to seek asylum. When we constructed the laws of our nation, we imagined that these things will happen that people from foreign countries will arrive here fleeing harm. So we put in place a process. Well, let's honor that process. The other thing is these private detention facilities. So after the debate that we had the last time in Miami, the next morning I drove down to a place in Florida called Homestead. And in Homestead, Florida, there is a private detention facility that currently, at least as of last week, houses 2,700 children. So I'm a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm a member of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. That private detention facility is being paid with your tax dollars. I was with other members of Congress. They would not let us in. So then, not being deterred, I walked down the road <laughs> and climbed up a ladder and looked over the fence. And I will tell you what I saw. I saw children lined up single file, based on gender, being walked into barracks. And what you should know is that some of them have parents that were literally on the other side of that fence, saying, please let me be with my child. It's inhumane. So private detention facilities. One of the first things I would do as president is shut them down, and I'm going to tell you why. Let's talk about the business model. The business model of a private detention facility is that somebody is profiting one human being from the incarceration of other human beings, and in this case, children. We need to shut those down, too. But our policies must be based on our values, which is to be humane and to agree that the strong arms of America should always be in the business of embracing and protecting those who are fleeing harm. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. We're gonna jump right back into the town hall questions, so we're gonna start with Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Senator Harris. I am saddened by our dying American dream, the one that was prevalent in my grandparents' generation and some of my parents' generation. Yeah. It seems as though the rich can only achieve this dream now. Yeah. Yeah. They do not have to worry about paying taxes, paying high college tuition, and losing their prescriptions mm -hmm. because they cost more. Some people were never able to achieve this dream yeah. because they have been held back by racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. What will you and Congress do mm -hmm. to get the American people, especially African Americans, Latinos, and other minorities, the chance to prosper in our country? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and thank you. Um, so you're right. I mean, there, there is no question that over many years the rules have been written in a way that have not supported working families, middle class families, as evidenced by what we talked about earlier. Almost half of American families can't afford a $400 unexpected expense. In America today, in 99% of the counties in our country, if you're a minimum wage worker working full time, you can't afford a one bedroom apartment. In America last year, 12 million people took out a loan of, on average, $400 from the payday lender at an interest rate often in excess of 300%. America's economy is not working for working people. You are absolutely right. And then you add on top of that things like student loan debt. I'll tell you, when I was Attorney General of California and I ran the second largest Department of Justice in the United States, 
second only to the United States Department of Justice. I took on the predators, including the predatory for-profit colleges. I, I put one out of business and got a $1 billion verdict because they were preying on hardworking families that were just trying to get an education and telling these students, a lot of them young adults, that they would get jobs and they would go on to become prosperous and productive, and they were just duping them. Um, you look at predatory practices. I've taken on, for example, pharmaceutical companies that preyed on seniors. Um, I, I had a battle, a huge battle, with the five big banks in the United States who were preying on homeowners, selling them these mortgages that they could not afford, and, and then doing these foreclosures without checking to see if the family could really afford to stay in their home. So you're right about how the system has been designed. There are many things that are beautiful about our system, and there are many things that are broken about our system, especially as it relates to working people. To your point, to your point, this president passed a tax bill that benefited the top 1% and the biggest corporations in America. Came and said he was going to help working people. But right now, you can look at everyone from farmers to auto workers who are looking at financial peril by the end of this year alone. Because of this president's so-called trade policy, I call it trade policy by tweet, the American consumer is right now paying $1.4 billion more a month in everything from shampoo to washing machines. Sixty of the biggest corporations in the United States paid no taxes last year. Who among us paid no taxes last year? So you are spot on right. The rules have been written in a way and then we have seen conduct by this administration, which makes clear it is not an agenda that's about working people. How do we deal with disparities? You talk about gender, you talk about race. Well, one of the things I'm prepared to do is deal with equal pay. Let me tell you why. I'm not going to ask you the year you're you were born, but I know you were not born around 1963. But do you know what <laughs> happened in 1963? In 1963, your government, our country, passed what was called the Equal Pay Act. Because way back in 1963, in the olden days, <laughs> we agreed women are not paid the same amount as men for equal work. And we got to deal with that. We need to put some laws in place because it's just not right. Fast forward to the year of our Lord, 2019. Women are paid on average 80 cents on the dollar. Black women are paid 61 cents. Native American women, 58 cents. And Latinas, 53 cents on the dollar. So I'm kind of done with the subject because it's not a debatable point anymore. Women are not paid equally for equal work. It's not a debatable point. So here's what I'm prepared to do. I'm prepared to put in place a requirement that instead of making that working woman prove that she's not being paid the same amount as the, as the, as the gentleman who's working in the cubicle next to her, because, you know, she's working and she's got a family that she's helping to raise. Instead, I'm going to put the burden on the corporation to prove that they're paying men and women equally for equal work, and they're going to have to put that information about whether they're not on their website. And just to create encouragement and incentive, for every 1% differential there'll be between how much they're paying men and women, they will be fined an equal percent from their previous year's profits. That'll get their attention. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Benjamin. Next that was question a great question, Benjamin. comes from Terrence Guinarine. Hi, Senator. Thank Hello. you for being here. Terrence, thank you. In your campaign memoir release early this year, you wrote that you believe in dismantling the failed war on drugs, starting mm -hmm. with legalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. 
In New Hampshire, there is a severe drug issue. Yeah. And I would like to know how you would put together a successful plan mm -hmm. or against drugs that, and why it includes uh, legalizing marijuana and why you don't believe this will lead individuals one step closer to addiction. Sure. That's a great question. Thank you, Terrence. So, um, as you know, I'm a, a former prosecutor. I actually started my career as a prosecutor during the height of the crack epidemic. And what I witnessed firsthand through what I do believe was the failed war on drugs is that on an issue that was essentially about addiction and public health, we criminalized whole communities and populations of people. And we ended up turning the jails and prisons of the United States into mental health facilities and substance abuse facilities around this issue. Instead of doing the right thing, and we've seen it happen, I mean, New Hampshire has been an incredible leader on this. And I, I all praise to Senators Shaheen and Hassan and so many others who have said, hey, no, wait a minute. This issue of drug addiction, one, it's a disease. Two, therefore, it's a public health issue. And our response as government should be to treat it as a public health issue, which means not incarcerating people, but getting them treatment and help, getting their families help. In New Hampshire, for example, we have seen that, that in this state, it, this state has the fourth highest rate of, of OD, of death, because of opioids. But over, actually, it's, I think since last year, that number of deaths has gone down because of the response by the leaders in this state, including the two senators, that have said, no, we can deal with this, but let's deal with it with treatment, with mental health services. Um, I also think about it in a way that is about saying, look, um, when we're talking about the effects of uh, what, is a, what is a massive addiction issue, there are s all kinds of ramifications, including right here in New Hampshire, but around the country, what we call the grand families. Seniors, people who have worked their entire lives, worked hard, and are now raising their grandchildren because their children are suffering from this addiction and are incapacitated in terms of their ability to parent those children. So there are all kinds of ramifications, and we have to treat it as a public health issue, specifically on the issue of marijuana. We incarcerated whole entire populations, in particular of young men of color, for possessing, you know, marijuana. And we and ended up being felons for life on an issue that was just literally, if you look at it in terms of the disparities, in terms of who was arrested, who was incarcerated, and who was using, it was just wrong. And, you know, not all drugs are the same. On the issue of marijuana, I actually believe also that there are legitimate health benefits. I am a, a, a supporter of medical marijuana. I have personally known people who were sick and only benefited from its use, could only get an appetite when they were going through chemotherapy because of it. So I also believe we need to decriminalize it so we can study it and, and see the, the, the medicinal benefits of it. And, um, and for that reason, I take the position that I do. So I thank, thank you. you for the question. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Terrence. We've got a question coming from uh, email. Christine Carter asks, I'm the parent of a high school senior who will be applying to college this year. I'm also a teacher and a single parent, so we will obviously need financial aid. Yeah. What plan do you have to help with the rising cost of yeah. student debt as yeah. our family will inevitably need to apply for a loan, especially since UNH is one of the most expensive state universities right. in the country? Right, and again, with the highest in-state tuition of any, of any state in the country. Uh, first, thank you for teaching. Thank you for being a teacher, one of the most noble professions that exists. Um, 
And in fact, I have w one way that we're going to address this specific concern um, is that I have a whole initiative that's about closing the teacher pay gap because currently in America I'm meeting more teachers who are working two and three jobs because that salary will not allow them to pay their bills. Um, teachers in American public schools, 94% come out of their own pocket to help pay for, for school supplies. And teachers on average are paid 11% less than similarly educated professionals. So my proposal will close the teacher pay gap with a federal investment um, which will be state and federal matching funds, and it'll be approximately in New Hampshire, but also nationally an average of $13,500 a year, which $13,500 a year is a year's worth of mortgage payments in most places, or a year's worth of groceries, or putting a significant dent in student loan debt. So that's one way I'll deal with that specific issue. Student loan debt, first of all, we got to deal, we're not talking enough about this, with how the tuition is being hiked up across the country. So that's one issue. But on the student loans, also let's track history back to the earlier point that over a period of time, we ended up allowing a lot of private companies to get into this space of issuing student loans and also servicing those student loans. And we've seen a lot of abuses and predatory practices. Again, maybe because of my, my current, my former profession, I strongly believe based on the work I've done that we also need to go after the predators in this space who are taking advantage of families and taking advantage of those students. Also, student loan forgiveness, in particular for students that are um, going into public service. I also believe that we need to have debt-free college, so for families that are making less than $125,000 a year. Um, and then we need to look at what we've got to do around allowing students to refinance their student loans. Um, so there are a, a bunch of different areas where we need to focus, but all with the goal of bringing down this burden. Because the way it's playing out, and I'm meeting students across our country who, you know, a student who is studying science and would love nothing more than to go and be a teacher in a high school, but because of the debt they have with the student loans, they're going to go and work in a pharmaceutical company because they can't follow their passion. I've, I'm, I'm meeting students who are coming out of school and wondering if they'll ever be able to start a family. It's very real, and we need to address it. And I'm going to connect this again because I just all of these issues are connected. Let's talk about go back to that trade policy for a moment. So part of the issue there is about the fact that we need to deal with China, that is stealing American infrastructure, I mean, uh, intellectual property, IP, right? Um, they're dumping substandard products into our economy. But you know the other part of this issue that is not getting any attention and is equally important? We need to compete. We need to compete. Around the globe, we are seeing ascending economies. And it is challenging us to figure out where we will be in this new world. We're in the middle of an industrial and digital revolution. Where are we going to be? We need to compete. People are getting stronger. We need to get stronger. That means investing in our students. It means investing in the American workforce and building up our skills. And that, frankly, is what drives me bananas about this current administration. Starting fires everywhere issuing policy by tweet, going on a unilateral way like one person on their own, instead of doing the real hard work, but the real work of saying, hey, let's invest in the American people. 
Let's invest in our economy. Let's grow our economy. Let's compete. That's part of what's missing with this current administration, and that's why this guy who's currently in the White House really has to get out. We don't have time for this. Next question comes from Sam Kluger. Hi. Hi, Sam. Senator Harris, my question is, what initiatives will you take to ensure my generation is an environmentally, has an environmentally safe future? Yeah, you're so right. And, um, and that really does capture the whole point. Those of us who are in a position of leadership have got to do right by you and your children. And so first of all, I, I don't even call it a climate change. I think it's a climate crisis. And the clock is ticking. And we have to treat this with a sense of urgency because it does represent an existential threat to who we are as a nation and a globe and a species. So I support a Green New Deal. I also, on day one, would re-enter the Paris Agreement and re-enter our nation and our country on that stage of leaders around the globe who are taking this seriously. Unfortunately, we, we have a current administration that is pushing science fiction instead of science fact. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a line from one of my colleagues, um, and I'm going to just take it from him for the moment, but it's his, which is, you know, this, this current president is talking about wind turbines cause cancer. They don't cause, this is his line now, not mine. They don't cause cancer, they cause jobs. We have to invest in renewable energies. We have to understand that we need to treat water as a precious resource. For, for, for generations, we've been fighting wars over oil. In a short matter of time, we will fight them over water. What are we doing to build up our infrastructure around investing in the, the capture of water, the storage of water, right? All of these things. We have got to be smart, and we have to act with a sense of urgency. And that's how I think about it. Because I want for you and your children and your grandchildren exactly what we all need, much less want which is to be able to breathe clean air and drink clean water. And at its core, that's what's at stake. And so we need leadership. And again, this is one of the most urgent reasons probably why we need a new president of the United States. Thank you, Sam. Next question Thank comes you, from Sam. Joan Wentworth. Senator. Hi, Joan. The ideas you have been presenting during your campaign seem to have a lot in common with those of other candidates such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Could you highlight some of the major differences between your proposals and theirs? And tell us what sets you apart in this very crowded field. That's great. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I'm going to let you don't do that. But I will, <laughs> I'll say this. Um, and I'm not really speaking about them as much as just I want to share with you my perspective. And my perspective goes back to that 3 a.m. agenda. I'm not trying to upend markets. I'm not trying to you know, overhaul entire systems. I, you know, as my first priority, it's about literally dealing with the things that keep people up at night. And, um, and I come at that having had the experience of being an elected leader at local government, state government, federal government, um, where I've always had a responsibility to just get things done. If for me, my work has not just been about you know, fancy speeches and, 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 and only good policy. It's been about actually implementation and getting things done. And so that's the way I approach these issues. Um, when it comes to what we're going to need, because I think this is part of what your question is requiring, is an answer to what are we going to need on that stage in a general. 
we're going to need someone who knows how to prosecute the case against four more years of Donald Trump. I know how to do that. And as far as I'm concerned, there's a really good hefty rap sheet upon which to do that prosecution. And it's going to include everything from that tax bill that benefited the top 1% and the biggest corporations. It's going to include almost everything that we've discussed today. It's going to include the fact that we've put babies in cages and separated children from their parents. It's going to include the fact that we've got everyone from farmers to auto workers who are going to lose their jobs or lose their financial health and stability because of this so-called trade policy. It's going to include the fact that instead of having a commander-in-chief who understands the responsibility that comes with that position to, to protect our nation's democracy and security, we currently have a so-called commander-in-chief who on the subject of Russia's actual interference in the election of the President of the United States embraces the word of the Russian president over the word of the American intelligence community. On the subject of an American student who was tortured and later died, a commander-in-chief currently, who embraces the word of a North Korean dictator over the word of the American intelligence community. On the subject of a journalist who was assassinated, a journalist who has American credentials, a current commander-in-chief who prefers to take the word of a Saudi prince over the word of the American intelligence community. We need a new commander-in-chief and someone who is prepared to do the work of concerning herself, as she always has, with your safety. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Joe. Next question comes from Sean Lewis. Thank you for uh, taking my question, Hi, Senator. Sean. Uh, among the many issues you've championed on the campaign trail, how important is campaign finance and lobbying reform? Yeah. Do you believe that it's the biggest barrier to systemic reform, and would you support a 28th Amendment to eliminate corporate money from our elections? I, you know, I would, listen, I, there's no question that our system of financing campaigns is wrong. The influence of money in campaigns is disgusting. And um, we can point to a number of, 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 of specific points that have made it so, including Citizens United, that allowed corporations and, and anonymous rich people to influence the outcome of elections where we have in many ways moved away from one person, one vote. I have made a vow to not take corporate PAC money and Federalist lobbyist money, and it would be one of my highest priorities to reform what, we, what we're doing in terms of campaign finance. Um, it has to happen. Because right now, there are corporations and very rich people who have had an outsized influence on the way that we are making decisions. You look at the commercials, you look at the, the, it's, I'm running for president. I'm going to tell you, it's really expensive. It's really expensive to talk to our nation about the issues in this, with this level of detail. And it shouldn't be that only the rich people get to influence the conversation. So I feel strongly about it, as you can tell. And yes, the answer is yes. I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. Next question comes from Judith Pence. Thank you for coming and answering our questions. Thank you, Judith. Uh, you've answered this in s to some degree, but le let's get a little more specific. Kay. Winning the Democratic primary is one thing. Yeah. But what will your strategy be mm -hmm. to get me and a lot of other Democrats 270 electoral votes? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> because, of course, the electoral vote system is, is something that um, needs to be discussed and addressed. But I will say that 
Um, the way that I am approaching our campaign now and intend to approach it in the general is about what we need to do to organize people on the ground, um, to build coalition, Again, with the, with, the, with the message and, and, and with the spirit of understanding we all have more in common than what separates us and that we're all going to either rise or fall together uh, in terms of the outcome of this election. Um, it is going to be about what we need to do to register people to vote, to get them to the polls. All of that is really going to matter. You know, there's, um, I, I think of winning elections as having three components. There is the piece which we have discussed about the ideas. That was the last question. Um, there's the piece about messaging. I, it, well, actually, that was the ideas was two questions ago. The ideas about messaging, I think, is part of the last question, which is how do you get your message out, right? Which is how do you message the ideas? But the third piece is the tactical, the structural aspect of winning a campaign. And that's going to be about how do we get people to vote? I do believe that in so many ways, 2020 is not going to be 2016. And 2018 tells me that. 2018 tells us that. When we elected 100 women to the United States Congress, so many, so many who had never run for office before. I mean, I think about people like a mom who lost her son tragically to gun violence, who had, who had never run before and ran in the state of Georgia on the importance of smart gun safety law and won the seat formerly held by Newt Gingrich. Her name is Lucy McBath. When I look at the kind of what, what we've seen happening around the country, you know, people call, you know, people are awake or woke. <laughs> and, um, and I really do believe that we're going to be, we're going to, we have to be smart in terms of harnessing the energy that is out there. But I believe we're going to get this done. I believe we're going to get this done. Yep. Quick follow-up on that. Uh, with the Electoral College, uh, you said reform. Would uh, abolishing the Electoral College be on the agenda for you or not? I, I think it should be on the table. Simple as yeah. that. Yeah. Let's go to Ken Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, because, listen, I'm, you know, at some fundamental point, I mean, it gets back to the point about one person, one vote. And um, so, yeah, I think it should be on the table for discussion. Kenneth Berlin. Hi, Senator. Hi. Nice to speak with you. Nice to speak with you. Uh, what have you done in your career? Mm -hmm to show your foreign policy expertise. Right. And how would you rebuild our tragically lost relationships with our allies? Yeah, and I agree with you, mm -hmm. tragically. Yeah. So um, I will tell you, I currently serve on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, and I am, therefore, for the last two and a half years, uh, a, a recipient of classified information from our intelligence community on a daily basis practically and I am acutely aware of um, of the threats to our nation and the hotspots around the globe and what we should be concerned about and I will tell you without any in intent in causing alarm we live in a dangerous world and we have to be smart about how we go about securing our nation's safety and one of the best ways to do that, to the point of your question, is to work with our allies. I would immediately re-enter the relationships and the integrity of the relationships with NATO, re-enter the Paris Agreement, um, reconnect with our, our, our allies in the EU. What we have seen is a current president who has turned America's back 
on these relationships. And part of the problem is that I don't think he has any full appreciation for the fact that, as with any relationship in our lives, you have to invest in a relationship. It's not just about transactional, this one thing we worked out. It's about a relationship that is based on trust. And part of a relationship based on trust is you also speak truth. And we know this president doesn't know how to speak truth very well. And so these are some of the, the, the ways that, that I intend to, to bring us back to a place where we are not only re-engaging those friendships and those alliances, but also strengthening our security because they are connected. And ultimately, I would say that um, it is also about having, and this is just a fundamental sad point, it is about also having a president of the United States who understands that she must read the briefing books, <laughs> unlike the current president, and must engage with our diplomats and our ambassadors, current and former, and our, and our smart people in the State Department, and our generals, and, and, and do that in a way that is about making smart decisions instead of the, the, these decisions that are being made out of ego. Because let's, let's just look at the empirical evidence again of what we have been experiencing, not just witnessing, guys, but experiencing, because it's our nation. It's our nation. This is a nation that belongs to the people, not the current occupant of the White House. What we have seen is to feed his ego, he does this photo op with the North Korean dictator, elevating this person's standing, not once but twice. What is that about? Embracing the so-called strongmen and rejecting the long-term friends. So there's a lot of work to be done, and it can be done, and I intend to do it. I bet you can. <laughs> <laughs> Our last question is from Ann Ackerman. You've got about two minutes. Hi, Ann. Hi. Good evening. Good evening. Um, my question is, what would you advise my college students to examine oh. about the electoral process? Oh, that's great. Well, a lot of it we've discussed. Examine the, the influence of money in campaigns. Really see that for what it is. Um, you know, it's a sad reality of, of campaigns that a large part of the campaign structure is based on how are you going to raise the money. It's gross. Honestly. I mean, look, uh, you know, I put it also in the context of the practical, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? Until we change the game, this is what you have to do. But I much prefer to spend all of that time talking to you, Anne, and talking to your students. Um, there is the part of the, the, the process that is about Really, and I would ask your students to really study and be uh, amplify the significance of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, with that deci decision in Shelby v. Holder coming out of the United States Supreme Court. Right after that decision that gutted the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act, at least almost two dozen states immediately passed laws that were designed to intimidate and suppress the vote, in particular of African Americans, Native Americans, and students. There was one case out of North Carolina where the Court of Appeal, when reviewing that case, said that that legislature, and I'm going to quote, with surgical precision, wrote a law to intimidate, suppress, or, or, or prevent African Americans from voting. 
And so when we go back to an issue like talking about the Electoral College or money in politics, and, and we ha it is about also talking about is it one person, one vote? Who is influencing an election and who votes? Um, so I'd ask them to study that. And then I'd, I'd ask them to study also a, a connected issue, which is foreign interference in the election. We are clear about this. 2016, the Russians interfered in the election of our president of the United States, the United States president. And if you listen to Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, and read the reports from our intelligence community about what happened, let's be clear, it is very likely, in fact, almost without any doubt, likely to happen again in 2020. And we have to be prepared because they are going to play us. They are going to play us. They are going to try and fan the flames of hate and division. They're going to try and have us going at each other as Americans. And it's going to be an influence campaign that is based on misinformation. And I'd ask your students to study that as well and to think about how we're going to inoculate. How are the American people going to know when they're getting played, when they're being fed misinformation, in a way that it does not influence our so important elections. And that's at a state level, at a, at a local level, and at, at the federal level. So I would ask them to study that because, you know, frankly, I think that um, we could do a much better job, and we're going to need your students in their role of leadership to get it done. Well, hopefully we promote civic engagement. Yes, right. yes, you, and then there's that. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Ann. And that's time for a conversation okay. with candidate Senator Harris. We Thank appreciate you, your time. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. those watching. Thank you for our town hall audience. Have a good night. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.